and welcome to Mark Bites, episode 132. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're gazumping and gazundering with mask-wearing chicken McNuggets. But we're starting with a shocking issue. There were reports of delinquency after the appearance of the last show. Seems some of you were hoarding the previous two shows. Doubtless, in case of there potentially being a <clears throat> short gap before the next show appeared. But look what happened when you least expected it. Another show appeared. Questions will be asked during the week, folks. We've got to keep this delinquency at bay, haven't we? We have. Now, don't you have a public apology to make? Do I? You do. A slight matter of numerical dyslexia, shall we say. Oh, yes. It's all coming back to me now. The premiere of the show on MacBytes FM, slight slip of the tongue, meant that I announced MacBytes 131 as MacBytes 133. Jonathan nearly had a heart attack. He feared he'd managed to miss two shows while he was catching up with Mummy Isaacs on a family phone call. Sincere apologies for that. Won't happen again. Until the next time. Quite. Now, we left you with a challenge last time. The challenge was to discover what a gazunder is. It seems it now has more than one meaning. In the context we were referring to it, it's a colloquial term for a chamber pot. A convenient convenience, if you will. So called as it goes under the bed. <laughs> See what I did there? Oh, he looks thrilled. <clears throat> anyway, there's a second meaning, completely different. Who knew? In the UK in the 70s, the housing market was buoyant. And I remember this. You pro Did you remember this? We were moving house, so it was relevant to us, but maybe not for you. I remember the term. Well, the term, a term that became very common was gazumping. And it meant a house buyer, having had an offer to buy a house accepted, finding themselves outbid when the seller received a better offer. Well, it seems times have changed. And now buyers are unfairly demanding a reduction in the price, the price they've already agreed to pay, just before they buy the house. A practice known as gazundering. Never let it be said that MacBytes isn't an educational experience. Anyway, talking about um, premiering MacBytes, we have indeed taken to premiering every episode of MacBytes on MacBytes FM straight after Marooned at MacBytes headquarters. A genius idea as we leave the chat open during that first airing of the show, which means we get to share it with the lovely MacBiters. I had a great chat with Simon during the last premiere and um, he gave me feedback regarding Paddle. He was agreeing with me. Um, it was all a little invasive for our liking. We reminisced about a previous payment processing service. In fact, we reminisced about quite a few. The ones who stuck to their end of the deal rather than trying to inject themselves into the relationship between the developer and the customers. Not these newfangled payment process services who seem to be in the activation management business. Simon particularly mentioned one company, couldn't for the life of him remember which one. But um, there had been a rather unfortunate demise of this company. Anyway, later in the week, he remembered and pinged me on Skype. It was catchy. <laughs> well done, Simon. I'm impressed. I couldn't remember either. Not a clue. But he signed off by saying, fabulous episode. Thank you, Mike and Elaine. You are most welcome, Simon. It was great fun. And it wasn't only Simon listening, was it? No. He subjected Mrs. Simon to the show as well. 
Seriously, Mrs Simon and Simon Jr. have been joining us for Marooned at MacBytes headquarters and we have had so much fun over the last few months. Anyway, by all accounts, Mrs Simon is still recovering from the knowledge that I've never owned a pair of jeans or trousers of any description. Sorry about springing that on you. Warnings will be given in future should any similar revelations be made. We also heard from Evie, who also hasn't recovered yet from the last show. She wrote, I didn't stop laughing for two days after listening to Elaine getting down with the cool Fortnite kids. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Evie. Do you know, I've forgotten what all of that meant now. (laughs) A week later and it's like, what was that? Uh, Anyway, Evie was also very taken with the idea of you subjecting Timmy to the question time treatment. Oh, I'm very keen on that too. Timmy less so, at least so I hear. Let's get all the MacBiters to send in the questions they would like to ask Timmy. Come on, folks, send them in. We can compare with what we'd like to ask him. He might agree. You never know. Hmm. Also, Tony got in touch and said that we'd forgotten another food calamity when we talked about all the food factories having COVID-19 outbreaks. Did we? We did. One we'd already covered in an episode of Marooned at Matvai's headquarters. The face mask in the McDonald's. He said he'd heard the show while driving home from an emergency visit to work and face masks were very much on his mind. But we'd put him right off popping into the McDonald's he could see looming in the distance. He said he loved the show. So thank you for your kind words, Tony. Now, the gory tale of the face mask in the McDonald's. Well, that was definitely worse than the potential Covid in the sandwich. It was the first week in August and a mother in the UK buys her daughter some chicken McNuggets. Child starts eating them. Um, From memory, can't remember how old the child was. Somewhere between three and six, I think. The child, as she's eating them, hits on a blue face mask baked inside them. The outraged mother takes them back to McDonald's. Big mistake. Trading standards at your local council is where you should be heading. But she rocked up at the McDonald's that she'd bought them at. Full of apologies, were they? Oh, I trust you're all joking. The only thing they said was, wait for it. They're not made on the premises. And what earthly difference did that make? They were clearly cooked on the premises, sold on the premises and served from the premises. How about a sorry? More like a mustn't admit liability moment. And there's really no defence for that. Literally no defence in law. Handily being a lawyer. I can state that as a fact. Um, No update on whether they're due in court or got off lightly with a year's supply of McNuggets. And... There's unequivocally no proof McNuggets are actually food, you know. As we well know, the last time we tried one, there was nowhere to go for food. We ended up in McDonald's. It'll never happen again. Not even if I'm starving will it ever happen again. But thanks for the reminder of that little gem, Tony. I'm glad to hear you're enjoying Marooned at MacBytes headquarters too. Now let's get on to some, some new toys this week, or at least... News stories. You'll doubtless recall the Fortnite fiasco from last week. The enterprising carpetbaggers ride again. This time, they're selling iPhones with Fortnite installed. Obviously, if you want Fortnite on your iPhone right now, you are out of luck. There's absolutely no way to download it from Apple. But if you've got it installed on your iPhone, you can still play. 
If you haven't, you're stuck. So what do these bandits do? Taken to eBay to sell their iPhones with Fortnite installed. I don't know why I'm surprised. It's happened before. It actually reminded me of Flappy Bird back in 2014. You remember that one? I remember Flappy Birds. Folks were selling phones with it installed. Laugh of it was, the original Flappy Bird was a free game. But of course, on its demise, it spawned a thousand clones where in-app purchases were needed, sometimes as often as every three lives. Um, another one was when, I think it's Konami or Konami, uh, they pulled a horror game called PT from the PlayStation Store. And people sold their PlayStation 4s on eBay with the demo version installed. I actually went to have a look and there's still one listed today on eBay, £750. The difference this time with Fortnite is the silly prices being quoted. Literally thousands, from £4,000 to £30,000 for a phone, a second-hand phone, just because it's got Fortnite on it. I can only assume, given the age demographic, who are, well, that this game is aimed at, Pocket money must have increased exponentially since my day, because there's no way I'd have had £30, never mind 30000 to buy a second-hand phone. But there you go. Uh, now, talking of Fortnite, we all know about Epic suing Apple. It's suing Apple to prevent it from revoking access to iOS and macOS development tools, which both Fortnite and even more crucially, apparently, Epic's Unreal Engine game engine depends on. As predicted last week, the follow my leader thing has started. Once one company takes a stance against Apple, they all come crawling out of the woodwork. This week, Microsoft has joined the Apple bashing fest. In a new court filing, no less. No, 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 not just briefing reporters actually sent it to court. Um, Epic states many of the thousands of other game developers who use the Unreal Engine had been in touch to express their concerns about the impact Apple's actions would have on their games. Translated, my mates agree with me. So Microsoft filed a declaration of support of Epic, describing Unreal as one of the most popular third-party games engines available to games creators. In Microsoft's view, there are very few other options available for creators to license with as many features and as much functionality as the Unreal Engine across multiple platforms, including iOS, the statement said. And... Wait for it. Microsoft also added a specific warning that its racing game, Forza Street, I'm presuming you've heard of that. I'm just listening to you and it's going over my head. <laughs> Forza Street. No, neither have I. Oh, nice. Uh, no, never, never in my wildest dreams would I thought would I think I'd be resorting to having to talk about games. But I am Forza Street, whatever. Well, it could be affected if the developers were unable to maintain the Unreal code. So, completely neutral in all this then, hey, Microsoft? Epic, of course, are attempting to circle the wagons. They've also, um, I won't say got Spotify on board, because that would really, if Spotify wasn't on iOS, that would be a big issue for them, wouldn't it? But in a statement, Spotify did say, we applaud Epic Games' decision to take a stand against Apple and shed further light on Apple's abuse of its dominant position, Apple's unfair practices of disadvantaged competitors and deprived consumers for far too long. 
So, schoolyard negotiation tactics, folks. I cannot wait to see how all this pans out. Seriously, think about it. The way 2020 has gone so far, anything could happen. And when they mentioned in that uh, comment something about it, it would be most unfortunate they didn't have access to it. Um, Apple stands. Just a minute. Apple didn't start this. I'm the first one to call Apple out when they're wrong. But Apple didn't actually start this. They reacted to something that Epic had done. So in the you started it, no, I didn't, you started it stakes. I think we can agree it was Epic that started this. Definitely. Oh, can I get out of gaming world and get into, oh dear, look what's next. <laughs> Another calamity. Oh, yes. Lightroom photo fiasco. From the news category of this should never, ever happen, we have the sad sorry tale of Adobe deleted all my photos. It needs to be a headline on the sun, that, doesn't it? <laughs> Similar to Freddy yeah. Star Ate My Hamster. Mm. Yeah. Adobe deleted all my photos. I'll say that again anyway, just for those of us who were too stunned at, th at those words, to take in the full impact of the horror. Adobe deleted users' photos. You're wondering how, aren't you? So was I. It was an errant Lightroom iOS update that nuked the lot, apparently. Mainly for those without a Creative Cloud subscription, strangely enough. Um, Creative Cloud subscribers were also affected. They lost anything that had not been synced back to Creative Cloud. And it included both photos and presets. The photos are, of course, completely unrecoverable, as are the presets. But I thought with that... Since the presets are a thing that can either be created or purchased, I'd have thought at least the purchased ones would be re-downloadable. But there are numerous reports that folks had lost hundreds of pounds worth of presets. Adobe's response? A person called Rick, I think that's Floor. You reckon that's Floor? I reckon that's Floor. It's an odd name. F-L-O-H-R. Never heard of that kind of name before. So, Rick Floor. Uh, on the Adobe Photoshop Family Forum. That sounds dodgy to start with, doesn't it? Um, he said, We are aware that some customers who updated to Lightroom 5.4.0 on iPhone and iPad may be missing photos and presets that were not synced to the Lightroom cloud. A new version of Lightroom Mobile 5.4.1 for iOS and iPadOS has now been released that prevents this issue from affecting additional customers. Installing version 5.4.1 will not restore missing photos or presets for those customers affected by the problem introduced in 5.4.0. We know that some customers have photos and presets that are not recoverable. We sincerely apologise to any customers who may have been affected by this issue. If you are affected by the issue, please refer to the information in the forum thread. It then adds, no assets in the Lightroom cloud were lost or at risk. Lightroom Mobile on Android, Lightroom Desktop on macOS and Windows, and as well as Lightroom Classic, are not affected. Hmm. They added the same sentiment to the Adobe blog uh, and suggested that the only viable option would be to try and recover what you can from an iOS backup. <laughs> Excavating in an iOS backup for anything is a nightmare job. An average user would stand no chance. Oh, it's obviously time for Question Time with Adobe CEO, Shantanu Narayan. You know, Question Time with Timmy style. 
On what planet is it acceptable for any update to have the power to do this? Would be my first question. Surely the first step when you've got an update is to ensure the safety of the user's data. And I'm thinking it can be done. And I know you're not a great Scrivener user, but you've sat through enough of my Scrivener training to know that it does back up. Haven't you? Lucky boy. I know it backs up. I've seen the backups. I've used the backups. Oh, what happened there? Was that operator error that lost something? I can't remember. It was operator no, error. No, I mean, yes. even if you don't use the snapshots feature of Scrivener, which is nothing short of amazing, and I suggest you do, it's got automatic backup. So every time you open a file, it can back up. Every time you close a file, it can back up. You can have time backups. You can have manual backups. I mean, data integrity before anything and everything else. Didn't they test this version that they rolled out? And the, I, I, can I do massive air quotes here? At least you'll see them, air quotes. The apology. They didn't actually address how they will ensure this didn't ever happen again. There was no mention in their simpering don't blame us style apology of anything like that. Companies rolling out services really do need, need to reevaluate their systems before, and I do think this phrase was used as well, snafus. <laughs> no, let's get that accurate. Almighty data disasters like this happening more frequently. And I'm thinking, especially services where the raw backups that you can make are tantamount to useless if the service is down for any length of time or even permanently. So I'm thinking... One that we use is Notion. You can export from Notion as PDFs, as HTML pages, as a collection of pages. But let's be honest, even CSV, which I know that you do. But can you imagine Notion was down for three weeks? Oh, then there'd be a lack of Mac bytes, wouldn't there? <laughs> Doesn't bear thinking about. You, the, the, the data that you get out of it, you could mine it if you, you know, if it was like, not that I suggest you do this, a password store, you could probably drill down and get the information that you needed. But if what you're doing is like Mike and I do with Notion, where we have one table with the shows in and one table with the stuff that's in the shows, you'll get two backups, but there'll be no link between them. So I'll have a list of shows and I'll have a list of stories. And um, yeah, no, not, mar not marrying them together by hand, I can assure you. So services like that, Notion, Trello, Asana, Zenkit, you really do need to have some kind of way of business continuity if they're down for any period of time. One user was so worried about their Notion data after hearing about the Lightroom thing, they've started a petition to try to shame Notion into providing a takeout service, a way to have the data exported that could actually be useful. So as I've said, Notion in particular exports data in bulk in CSV format and you know, you could open it up. CSV is basically plain text. But can you imagine trying to find anything? You would be able to see all your data, but it would be in separate silos. And the whole point of Notion is in making links between the data. Uh, it can be done because apps such as Roam let you download your entire database and use it offline. So let's see if Notion take heed of the feelings of the users. Um, make sure you do everything you can to back up whatever you use in the meanwhile. But they're saying if it had been backed up to the Creative Cloud, the Lightroom Cloud, I wouldn't rely on anything automated inside the app, nor would I rely on a single cloud provider. 
We back things up seven ways from Sunday, don't we? We do. Adobe should be ashamed of this fiasco. Absolutely ashamed. Instead of which, they've, they've made their little statement and that's it. They're now saying absolutely nothing more. It's all done, finished, under the carpet, forget it. Carry on, as you were, nothing to say. Can you tell? I'm getting a bit riled with that. Yes, just a bit. Oh, oh, P.S. on that. I didn't lose a thing. Gave up on, on using Lightroom years ago. <laughs> I would use Lightroom if I needed to edit like one photo, but in terms of carefully triaging three million photos, no, not happening. But let's move on to something. Is this any better? Uh, maybe. You had an interesting experience this week, didn't you? Let's say that much. I did. It started off a bit scary, though. A few months ago, my mum's Windows laptop stopped working. It booted up OK, Windows logo appeared, then a blue screen. Now, not your traditional blue screen of death. Remember those? Oh, sadly, yes. Burnt onto my psyche, they are. Yeah, with the, had all the all the text on it and like half a screen's worth of text. This was just a light blue screen with a message that said, something went wrong with a sad smiley. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in my day, error messages, like you're saying, the blue screen of death with like 14 pages of A4 squeezed onto a screen and you're like, oh dear. But at least that told you something. These error messages today, you know, sad smiley. Sorry, something went wrong. That's really helpful. That's fabulous for troubleshooting. Just let me Google the emoji. It did have an error code. Um, so, yes, that, that sort of helped, but certainly not 14 pages worth of, of, of stuff like, like in the old days. Um, but about three or four years ago, I bought a Windows laptop. I'm sure we've discussed it before, but I hadn't used it for ages, as I now have a Surface and a fast VM. Now, my mum's not a power user. She surfs the web. She does her email. She plays online bridge. She Zooms with friends. She does a bit of Word. So I gave her my spare laptop. She doesn't live far, so I dropped it off. And literally, I left it in a plastic bag on her doorstep. And she left the broken one. <laughs> and run for your life. <laughs> she left the broken one in a plastic bag on the doorstep. It was something out of a spy movie. Plastic bags being swapped on the doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like a tech drug deal. <laughs> well, that's what COVID's done to you, hasn't it? It was actually at the height of the COVID calamity, you're right. It was. Her, her main concern was that there were thousands of photos on the hard drive, and many of them were from my dad, who, as many of you know, passed away not long ago. Now, my intention was to put these photos into the cloud. I would say securely, but not after the last uh, story. <laughs> um, <no. clears throat> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Lost it now. On her broken laptop, she used Picasa, which was a desktop app from Google, and it's used for viewing and editing images. I don't think she did any editing, but she certainly did plenty of viewing. Picasa was also the name of a Google-owned cloud-based service for storing photos. Now, the desktop app is no longer supported, and the online service has become Google Photos. But I don't think she used the cloud service. All her photos were stored locally. She, as I say, she used the, the Picasso desktop app to view and organize photos. She's got a free Google account and that gives her 15 gig of space. And so my plan was to upload the photos to her Google Photos account. 
and I thought I'll start by making a copy of the photos from this external drive that she'd given me uh, onto my Mac HD. And once I'd done that, it was then that I noticed something. On my Mac HD, there were some empty folders. And I'm thinking, had some of the images not copied across? I checked this external drive and the same empty folders existed there too. So I thought, where were the photos from these folders? Were they in the Picasso cloud and not on the external drive? But as I said, as far as I knew, she wasn't using the cloud. If I asked her, she probably wouldn't know. You know what it's like? Many muggles, they don't know or they don't care where they're stored. They're, they're, they're just photos and she's not going to know any. Sure as heck do when they go missing. Well, yeah. My second thought was, were these photos on the laptop hard drive and for some reason not being copied across to this backup drive, this external drive? And I thought that would be unlikely. As far as I knew, the external drive contained a copy of all her data off the hard drive and she did back it up on a, on a semi-regular basis. Um, my first thought was that she'd be distraught that she's lost a load of photos and as the laptop was still not booting, I couldn't actually check. So what I did is just out of curiosity, I connected the external drive to my Windows VM. I opened File Explorer and selected a couple of these folders and found that they contained at least one file. But they weren't photos. Some were Picasa metadata files that were automatically generated by Picasa. Uh, they contained metadata about the images. Some of them were thumbs.db files, which various applications create. Some folders had one Picasa file in them. Some had two or three. Some folders had one thumbs.db file. Some had two or three. And because the file names began with a dot, they didn't show up on the Mac in Finder. Whereas with Windows, show hidden files is on by default. So I reconnected the external drive to my Mac and I opened Finder and I did a quick Google. Can you display hidden files in macOS Finder? Because I was pretty sure you couldn't. I've, I've done it through Pathfinder, but I didn't think you could do it through Finder. But guess what came back as the top hit? A blog post on the setup website. The answer was, yes, you can. If you press Command, Shift and Full Stop in Finder, it toggles between displaying hidden files and not displaying hidden files. Now, why can't that option be a toggle on Finder's view menu instead of being activated by pressing some obscure combination of keys? Because Apple are protecting you from yourself. Well, yes. But problem with that is... When you inadvertently press that shortcut key and all these hidden files appear and you've not a clue what you did, doesn't help Apple. Not in Hotter. Put it on the menu. There's one for Timmy. Oh, oh, a, a Timmy question. <laughs> a Timmy question. A QTT, a question time with Timmy. <laughs> As I said, I could have used Pathfinder, but it's not installed. But that's a whole different story for a different day. That involves me accidentally removing the app. But really? <laughs> I won't go. I didn't hear about it. this. No, no, I, I kept that one quiet. <laughs> Q 
get on with it. On close examination of these folders, I realised what was going on. So just to pick one example, there was a folder called 2512-2012, which contained about 20 photos of my nephew. 2512-2012 is the date, 25th of December 2012. And there was another folder called 2512-2012 Christmas, which was empty or appeared to be empty. And many of these folders followed this pattern. The empty folder was named with a date and a description, and there was a corresponding folder with just the date as its name. So how did this happen? I've, I've got absolutely no idea. It's unlikely to have been her, because I don't think she knows how to create a folder. <laughs> there are times ignorance is bliss. Yeah, could have been one of her friends who'd, uh, who used to help her with, uh, with her computer. So I thought I might as well get rid of these empty folders. They were of no use and they would probably confuse her if she was actually ever to look at the folder structure through File Explorer. And I didn't want her thinking that there were missing photos when there weren't. And also the hidden Picasso files were pointing to images on the C drive of her whole old laptop. Now, although the Picasa app is uh, dead, the desktop app, you can still download it from third party websites. So if I do install it on her new laptop, the one that I've given her, the images would be in a different location. But I wanted to delete the empty folders on mass. I needed a way to select just the folders that were empty. Now, there's two ways to do this. One way is to go to Finder and navigate to the parent folder. Press Command and F to display the search bar at the top of the Finder window. Change the Kind dropdown, the dropdown that lets you choose what kind of uh, file you want to deal with. Change that from Any to Folder to display just the folders. And then click the plus sign on the right and add a second search criteria. If the folders really were empty, I could have set Number of Items equals zero as the search criteria but we know that they aren't really empty. And because some of the folders contain one file, some contain two, some contain three, etc., there's no consistency. I can't say, show me the folders where the number of items equals one, for example. So back to Google. I searched for Mac OS bulk delete empty folders and up popped a link to an app called Find Empty Folders, which I've stuck a link in the show notes to. It's a free app that does one thing, finds empty folders. And what it considers to be empty is a folder that really is empty or a folder that contains one or more hidden files. Now, don't be put off by the website if you do go and have a look at it. It's not quite 1980 called Unwanted It's Website Back. It's plain yet functional. It's what I call a typical developer's website. My first thought was, how old is this app and does it still work? But I was pleasantly surprised by the message on the website that it's 64-bit and works in Catalina. So I downloaded the app and I took it for a test drive. It works on the hard drive of your Mac. It works on external drives. It works on folders and subfolders and not just entire drives. So you run the app. It displays a window. You drag a folder or a drive icon onto the app's window. It analyzes the selected drive or folders. 
and it lists all the empty folders and subfolders within that folder or that drive. And for each empty folder, it displays a folder name, number of hidden files, and the full path to the folder. You can click the headings to sort the list into different orders. For example, sort the list based on number of hidden files um, or name or whatever. And for each folder, you can choose to reveal it in the finder or move it to the trash. But I wasn't just doing this for a MacBytes review. I actually needed to do a job. So I dragged the parent folder containing the photos onto the apps window and up popped the names of almost 150 folders. I thought I'd better do a quick check, make sure they are actually empty. Maybe Adobe should have done that, that quick check before they created the new version of um, Lightroom. Um, so I did a quick check uh, to make sure that they were empty or at least just contained the Picasa config or the ThumbsDB files. And once I was happy, I pressed Command and A to select all the folders and clicked send to trash and it moved all the folders to the trash. I would say it's a good app to have in your toolkit. You might only use it once or twice, but when you do, it makes the job really, really easy. That's not actually something I can imagine myself using, but if I needed it, that's very cool. I don't tend to give applications run of my hard drive, to be honest. I like to know before I start using it where the data is and what, what happens when it all goes wrong. <laughs> but that's just bitter experience speaking. You know what we haven't had in a while, Mike? No, what? A shopping with Elaine piece. Quick, tin hat on folks. No, this is a proper how to save money piece. Yes, I was stunned to see that in the show notes. When you've all finished, it's several money saving tips to get the very best value from Audible. She is particularly skilled at that, to be honest. Thank you. At least one of you recognised that. Let me share the ways you can save a fortune on Audible books. First of all, there are, there are four types of subscription. I think in the States these have names, and they very well may have the same names in the UK internally, but they're not marketed with these names. OK, so first level of subscription is one credit per month, and that costs you $7.99. Obviously, throughout the year, should you stay, stay subscribed for all 12 months, that's going to cost you £95.88 a year, which makes each book $7.99. But the other common type of subscription is a two credit subscription for $14.99. So in the year you get 24 credits, which is going to cost you £179.88, which makes each book £7.50. So each book 50 pence cheaper. Those are the only two subscriptions that used to exist at one point. And I don't think they make it overly clear that there are actually two other subscriptions. There is a 12 credit subscription. Now you're thinking, well, just a minute. The first one was 12 credits. It was, but it was one per month. So if you find that you've run out of credits, then you're going to need to buy extras. Um, you can also store credits for a certain number of months. So the difference is you get one credit put on your account every month. The difference with the 12 credit plan is that you get the 12 credits at the start of your subscription. So 12 credits go into your account and that will cost you 69.99. That makes each book only £5.83, which is over £2 cheaper than paying for one credit a month on a monthly basis. 
But the next subscription is for 24 credits and that will cost you £109.99 a year. That makes each book only £4.58, which is almost half the price of taking that one credit per month subscription. Originally, I was on the two credits a month fourteen ninety nine thing, but I've switched. Now, you've only just changed your subscription, on my advice, and you've gone from the one credit per month at seven ninety nine to the 24 credits a year deal. Now, that might sound excessive, but given that Mike was paying £95.88 a year for 12 credits, he's now only paying £14.11 more per year for twice the number of credits. So those extra credits that Mike's got, the 12 of them, make those credits, by comparison to what he's paid for the last 12 months, only £1.17 each. So how good was my advice on that one, Mike? Brilliant. Thank you. Right. So that's in terms of your subscription. So get your subscription right first. Even if you think I'm only going to use one a month, it's still cheaper to buy them in a batch of 12 with a year's subscription. Now, the next way to save money. This might be obvious to you, but, you know, <laughs> I've seen people. I've got a credit and I'm going to use it. But the first obvious way to save money is to never waste a credit on a book that you could buy for less than the price of that credit. So some of the books that I purchase are summary style books and they're generally under four pounds. So a summary style book is like um, a summary of GTD by David Allen or a summary of The Purple Cow, Seth Godin. And it's not the full book. It's usually between 25 to 50 minutes. And it is just that. It's a summary of the book. Now, four pounds is less than the price of a credit. So just pay cash. Just buy them. The next way to save money is the daily deal. Do you check out the daily deal? No, must admit I don't. You can subscribe to an email for it. So every day at 12 o'clock, you'll get an email that tells you what the daily deal is. And the daily deal is a single title that Audible have on sale. And the price is usually between $1.99 and $2.99. So throughout the year, you'd get the opportunity. 365 books will be on sale throughout the year between those prices, which is a great way, especially if you're paying upwards of sort of six, seven pounds for a credit, you're getting a, a book at half price. Now, Audible also have, third way, sales and special offers. They generally start on a Sunday. And again, you can subscribe to get the mails for notifications of weekly deals. The deals are all different. So it's not the same deal on every week on different books. They are actually different kind of deals. Uh, one of the best ones is a two for one deal, which means that you get two audiobooks for one credit. So seeing as though we were down to like four pounds odd for a credit, you're getting two books for that price. The next deal is sometimes a three for two deal. Now, obviously, that's not quite as good because on the two for one for two credits, you'd get four books. But depends on the books that are part of the sale and whether they're the books you actually want to buy. This week, the deal is 50% off, and that's brilliant for those books where the discount takes the price to below the price of a credit. There's also special sales, and these will be a range of books at specific price points, and they tend to mix and match these sales. But when you've been with them over a year, you can predict to within a couple of weeks when these sales are likely to be. There's also the Christmas Advent books, Following our lead there, Advent specials. But for Christmas, either the whole of December or the 12 days of Christmas, there'll be 
a special deal on, either on a single book, multiple books. There's also free books at certain times. So Christmas is one of the, the main times that Audible will give you a free book. It may be even more than one free book. But basically, keep your eye on the sales and special offers because that can extend the value of your credits greatly. Now, when you run low on credits, so when you have no credits left at all or you have a single credit, you can usually buy more. Now, there is a limitation on that, which is you have to have been a member for three consecutive months to be allowed to purchase the credits. So you can't just dip in and out and take one month and then run out of credits and buy three more and then not pay for the next few months. But if you've been a member for three consecutive months and you are down to zero or one credit, you can buy more. You buy these credits in batches of three and they are cheaper than your subscription price, whatever plan you're on. But the price of the credits does depend on the plan that you're on. So if you're on the one credit plan, you can buy three extra credits for £18, which makes them £6 each, which is £2 less than your subscription credit would cost you. On the two credit plan, three credits cost you £17, which makes them £5.67 per credit. Now, the 12 credit plan will let you buy extra credits when you've run out. And the price is going to be somewhere between £11 and £17. I can't be more precise. I've never been on that plan. And Audible don't make this information public. They don't want you to save too much money. Not like me. We definitely do. Hence, sharing this information with you. Now, I am on the 24 credit plan. And thus, I know I can buy more credits in a batch of three, £11, which is £3.67 a credit. A huge, huge saving on the full price, which is 7 pounds So well less than half price. But of course, don't use a credit for any book costing less than the price of replacing a credit. Now, I'm being very precise there in terms of language. The price of replacing a credit. So notice that's not the price of the initial credit. So let's do an example. Maths with Elaine. Let's say you're on a two credit subscription, which is £14.99 a month. That means that your credits cost you £7.50 per credit. So you're looking at a book and the book is £6.50. Logically, that's cheaper than the £7.50 that the credit cost you. But to replace that credit will cost you less than £6. So financially, it makes no sense to buy at £6.50 because it's going to cost you 50 pence more than the value of the credit. Notice the value of the credit, not the initial price. So I'd say there only buy books that cost less than the replacement value of the credit. Another way to save money is to buy the Kindle version of a book and use WhisperSync. Now, what I mean by that is Amazon own Audible and this benefits you. If you've created an Audible account lately, it will already be linked to your Amazon account. But if you've been with Audible for years, you need to go through a process to link your accounts, your Audible account and your Amazon account for this to work. It's a simple process. Even I managed it without screaming at anybody. You do have to contact them, I think, although uh, that, that was when I did it. There may be an automated process now. But it was relatively painless considering. Do I always expect the worst of these things? Yes. Mm. But that's usually 
born out of bitter experience. Anyway, once your accounts are linked, you buy the Kindle version of a book and then that entitles you to buy the Audible version at a greatly reduced price. This is irrespective of the price of the original Kindle book. Now, Amazon have sales constantly. There are many books available to you at 99 pence or a pound and it gives you more opportunities to save money because the audible prices of those books are often somewhere between 2.99 to 3 pounds 49. So, let's say your credits to replace your credit would cost you 5 pounds 6 pounds but the book is on sale at a pound and the audible price is 2.99 it's going to cost you 3.99 and you've also got the kindle version as well so that's a great way to save money there's also a thing called kindle unlimited it's a subscription service it's £7.99 a month. Now, it's not instead of your Audible subscription. It's as well as, but hold on. It's a lending library service for Kindle. So you have access to all the books in Amazon that authors choose to make available via the service. And there is an extensive range of books. You can borrow up to 10 at a time. So hence the lending library service part. Why am I telling you this? Because this is Kindle books. Because the books that you borrow via your Kindle Unlimited plan qualify you for WhisperSync pricing on Audible. So you borrow the book via Kindle Unlimited. And if you want the audio version, you click the add Audible narration to your purchase for just and then there will be a price quoted. And that you will find that link underneath the buy button. Sometimes I will borrow a book via the Kindle Unlimited service. I will then purchase, that qualifies me for the purchase of the audiobook, and then I return the Kindle book, never having opened it, <laughs> because I just want the audio version. And it works. Maybe they've not gotten on yet. Well, in that case, this is super secret. D don't let on. It's for MacBiters only. Then there are free Kindle books. Now, exactly the same principle applies to any free Amazon book. And there is a chart of the top 10 free Amazon books available to you all day, every day. And they do change all day, every day. Put the link in the show notes for you. You buy any of those books and it qualifies you for reduced pricing in Audible, even though the book was free and it didn't cost you anything at all. Now, you might have to wade through a disproportionate number of books of a rather <clears throat> dubious adult nature, but there are some gems in there. And as I say, it's constantly updated. There is yet another list on Amazon. This one is called the Movers and Shakers list. I know you couldn't make these titles up, could you? It's a good page to keep your eye on. It's a list of the most popular books right now. Now, often that's because the book is either on sale right now or it's been on sale and because of that it's a shaker or potentially a mover however you want to look at it i've never found a free book on that list because there is a dedicated free book list but it is intended to show the books that are selling quickly right now again often the price is 99 pence or a pound and again you buy the kindle version and you get the audio version at a greatly reduced price so, see, that was a really valuable shopping with Elaine. Normal service will doubtless be returned next time when I'm ranting over something stupid a retailer has forced me to endure. While my tolerance level for stupid is usually extremely low, 
during these COVID-related times, it's virtually non-existent. Retailers, you have been warned. Leave me be. But useful, Mike? Very useful. Very comprehensive. Mm, so that was that was the good retail bit, wasn't it? Let's get on to reality bites. Mm, setup. Sometimes there are no words. The original deal with Setup was that you got access to a library of applications. Uh, wasn't there originally 90 of them or was there not even that many? Don't know. At the start. 90 rings a bell. And the original deal was that you could use any of these applications on up to two of your own personal Macs. That was it. It was simple. So you paid a monthly fee. Uh, you can get a reduction on that monthly fee if you pay the fee annually. So it was either $9.99 a month or $8.99 a month paid up front. But there is a new deal out there. Now, we noticed this a good few months ago. It must be at least three months ago, mustn't it? Because it was regarding your Ulysses subscription. We noticed that the little flash in the corner that said two max now said one Mac. And I said they wouldn't have changed that unless you, know, you were not going to change the branding and the marketing unless that was the truth. But the FAQs, no help at all. So we worked on the principle that if you had a service that you could install on two Macs and now you can only install it on one, that's tantamount to doubling the price or looked at another way, halving the value. I noticed because I went to find out that there were people with mutterings in forums and things saying that they had got on to set up and inquired about this and being told that, yes, it was now actually only one Mac. And these were the people who had already had it on two Macs and they were getting messages that, you know, you haven't got enough seats to run it on this computer. They managed to get grandfathered onto two Macs. Now, I cannot find out whether that is they are permanently grandfathered onto two Macs for the same price or until they make a change. So you buy a new Mac and you want to deactivate one and, and activate another. Isn't that how Evernote does it? I think so. It's either Evernote or Drop. I think it's Evernote. Yeah. You can have it on so many devices but as soon as you deactivate on one that's it you're done mm. was it evernote or was it dropbox or was it both of them both I because think. the i think it was both the dropbox thing do you remember last year when my new iphone arrived <laughs> who's go who's ever going to forget that he went for petrol before before delivering it but we were trying to dash out the door weren't we and i remember thinking what am i going to do about dropbox yeah mm. so it was either dropbox or evernote or potentially both of them but Dropbox is in my mind. So if you made a change here, we've no idea what would happen. Then there was adding iOS to the mix. Now, certain iOS applications were already available via the original deal. Now, this was not something that they marketed. It was just Ulysses was part of their library and Ulysses, you could use it on the desktop via setup and having setup automatically entitled you to use Ulysses on iOS devices. But this wasn't global because MindNode was in the original deal, but not for iOS. So you could only use it on the Mac. They've now introduced this concept of slots or devices and introduced an iOS only plan. Now, that iOS only plan is for you to add a slot to your account for an iOS device. That will cost you $2.49 a month. But the extra seeds, these slots, were originally 
Four ninety nine a month, and that is in addition to the monthly fee of eight ninety nine if you pay annually, or nine ninety nine if you pay monthly. Now, when they announce the price, you know, add an extra seat for only four ninety nine. Uh, how best to explain what happened next? The smiling pile of poo emoji hit the air conditioning. To say the subscribers were not happy is an understatement. It's complicating the original simply understood system. It's confusing the users. There was no official announcement of the seat number changes. There was no official announcement of the price changes. Um, just nothing. Even the iOS slot thing, nothing. And you can't do that anymore. Years ago, users were isolated from each other. But the internet changed all that. So the common response from support is often only a small number of users are affected. But now users congregate together online. You can't say things like that now, unless they really are true. Because one post from a single affected user can turn into a raging inferno of a support nightmare when the users realise it's all of them, not just the few that have been suggested. In fact, that actually happened recently to me. I'm in a Facebook group about Notion because obviously we live in Notion and I don't really spend that much time in this Facebook group. It's tips, tricks, etc. But it isn't much in the way of support. I mean, I guess you could post and ask a question, but it's all a bit hit and miss as to whether you would get an answer. But in my Facebook feed, this piece came up and it obviously was suggested for me from one of the groups I'm in because it was on fire. <laughs> There'd been like eight replies to this thing. And this person said he was quite new to Notion and he'd spent two hours trying to fix what he considered to be a problem and it wasn't working. And the thing was, he was that new. He really genuinely didn't know if it was him or if there's something wrong with it. He gets on to support and support confirm that this is an issue. So it was an issue that you could easily see and replicate to see if you had it. You make a new item based on a template and all of the assets, the imagery doesn't come through from the template. So you think, oh, it's broken. I'll go fix the template. You open the template and the images are there. He couldn't fathom that. So support came back and said to him, it's only affecting a few users, but sadly you're one of them. We're dealing with it. He posts this onto the Facebook group, not in a kind of trolley way. He literally just posts it and says, so, you know, I've wasted two hours trying to fix this. If you've got this problem, you could be one of the few people affected. <laughs> one of the few people affected. It exploded. Everybody had the issue. I went in, I tried it, I'd got the issue. So you can no longer get away with only a small number of users are affected because your users are your community and they know you're lying through your teeth and that will affect your credibility. So that was just a slight aside with an example of mine, but that's exactly what setup do every time. But you were almost tempted, weren't you? Well, it's become a running gag, hasn't it, in uh, Marooned as to when I'm going to get a setup account. Yes. I did look at setup a couple of months ago when my Ulysses subscription ran out and I'm still procrastinating. At the time, like you said, it looked a good deal, around £100 a year to install the apps on two Macs. I just said that was a bit of a, uh, a no brainer, really. And even now at £100 a year for one Mac or about £125 a year for two Macs, it's still a good deal compared to what it would cost you for individual licenses. 
I did a bit of a cost comparison. What it would cost for me for individual licenses compared to a setup subscription. The comparison assumed only one Mac because I only have one Mac. And out of all the apps on setup, I worked out I probably only use about 10 of them. Some of them I'd never use. Some of them were nice to haves. So I only included the apps that I thought were essential to me. And that was Ulysses, Cloud Mounter, Downey, Better Zip, Bartender, BusyCal, Dropzone, Pathfinder and Default Folder. If I didn't own any licenses for those apps right now and had to go and buy a single user license for each app, it would cost me around £280. Apart from Ulysses, those purchases are one-offs, i.e. they're not subscriptions. So let's say, and this is just an assumption, let's say I don't need to upgrade anything for three years. Over a three-year period, it would cost me £230 for all the licenses except Ulysses. And in reality, actually, that 230 is about 180 thanks to the various Black Friday deals that I got. But let's stick to the 230 because some of those licenses I've actually had for two or three years and the apps will probably stop working shortly unless they upgrade. So on top of that 230, I need to add 150 for three years worth of Ulysses subscriptions. So we have a grand total of 380. With setup over the same three year period, it cost me about 300, as I said, about 100 a year. So at this point, from a financial view, setup is winning. But then we have to throw iOS into the mix. And currently, there's actually only eight iOS apps on setup. There's Gemini, there's To Do, there's Task Heat, there's Paste, there's PDF Search, there's MindNode, there's SQL Pro, and there's Ulysses. And the only app on setup that I'd use on iOS would be Ulysses. MindNode, I would say, is a nice to have. And SQL Pro Studio might be worth having, so I could manage my SQL databases uh, on the road. But I've not been on the road since February. And that app alone costs £100 if bought directly from the developer. But for that, you do get a license for Mac, Windows and iOS. But I'm going to class that as a nice to have. And although I have two iPads and two iPhones, one iPad hasn't been switched on for about two years and one iPhone is just used as a secondary device. So for costings, I'll just consider two iOS devices, one iPhone and one iPad. And that will add £5 a month or £60 a year to the setup bill. Sticking with our three-year cost comparison, that's another £180, which means that now over three years, setup would cost me £480 which is £100 more than if, than if I'd bought individual licenses and subscriptions. And suddenly, setup doesn't look so attractive. But for me, there's actually more than just the, the cost to think about. You've got to think about what if several apps that I currently use that I pay annually for join setup. You've got to think about what if some of my essential apps were pulled from setup. You've got to think about, um, well, there's several things to think about. Those are the two that come to mind. I'm sure there's, there's other things to think about. But uh, am I going to get a setup subscription? I'm sure that's the question everyone's thinking about. I'm still sitting on the fence. I'm not surprised. There are far too many variables in this mix. Apps could be added to setup, could be removed. Apple might stop the iOS thing. 
I'm surprised that's even possible. But there's also an issue of trust. Setup have never covered themselves in glory with their ability to communicate their intentions. To be honest, if you're not up to any mischief, why aren't you up front with all your communications? It's going to be interesting to see how this pans out. It's not going to be the last time we hear about it, that's for sure. Now, if you think the setup thing is bad, just wait until you hear this next piece. Devon Think. I love Devon Think. I got version one as soon as I got a Mac. There were many different versions back then and you could start with a personal edition, which was incredibly inexpensive, and then trade up as your needs increased, which was what I did. Then version two came out in February 2010 and I was soon upgrading myself to the DevonThink Pro Office version so it could support my Fujitsu scanner. All was well. Version three took nine years to arrive and it arrived in the spring of 2019. There were promises in the release information of a Mac App Store version. That was 18 months ago. Still no sign of it. Now, the original licensing model was logical, but for version three, they went in with Paddle for payment processing. Hmm, Paddle. In my experience, that never ends well. Not for me, anyway. But with no sign of the Mac App Store version, which of course would give you the ability to install on as many Macs as you own, I eventually took advantage of the Black Friday sale and I upgraded. The license is now activated. This was why I was waiting for the Mac App Store version. So your first purchase, the first license, gives you two seats. It's $199 for a new purchase or $99 to upgrade from version 2. I installed it on the iMac and I started testing version 3. Obviously, version 2 was still installed on both the iMac and the scanning Mac, which is my 2009 MacBook Pro. But version 2 was soon not being used on my iMac because I was transitioning everything to version 3. So once I'd got it all set up and running on the iMac, I started using version 3 exclusively. No worries for nine months. Started doing the DevonThink series on MacBytes After Hours and still no major issues. Then, as discussed last time, I hit a problem. The installation of version 2 on the 2009 MacBook Pro stopped working. All I could see was a dialog box asking me to input my username and serial number. No problem at all. It was in one password, but it wouldn't accept them. It couldn't be wrong if I'd copied and pasted. And the only other option was to access an online account, the one that I didn't think I had, because I couldn't find it in one password. That was what led me to try the new ScanSnap version 7 driver, which ultimately worked. So at this stage, result. However, that didn't explain the issue I was seeing on the 2009 MacBook Pro. So once everything else was sorted, I returned to that MacBook Pro. I realised as I went back to one password that I'd been searching for DevonThink rather than Devon Technologies. Looking for Devon Technologies, I instantly found the account details. Now I was getting somewhere. To test the account credentials, I logged in. It worked. So, so far, all good news. I just needed to investigate what had gone wrong with the version 2 install on the 2009 MacBook Pro. In the online account, I found a list of all my registered products, eight of them over the years, including the one that had previously worked perfectly on that 2009 MacBook Pro. The licensing question was for DevonThink Pro Office 2. Just one slight problem with it. 
It was shown in red with a line right through it. One other licence was shown in the same way. Devon Agent Pro 2. Investigation informed me this was because these licences were used to upgrade to the newer versions of both those applications, DevonThink Pro 3 and Devon Agent Pro 3. OK, that made sense. But light suddenly dawned on the ramifications of the system Devon Technologies have implemented. Those licences for the previous versions can no longer be used. Clearly not even on Macs that the apps were already installed on. That's a bit stingy on Devon Technologies' part. But it seems that the cost of the discount on the upgrade price is that you lose access to the old version. There's an inconsistency here, because the version 1 licences were still available for use. Inconsistent, because I'd use them to upgrade to version 2 of DevonThink. The next issue. The number of seats available were displayed. OK, if it's the new versions where they'd change their licensing model. But these new restrictions apply retrospectively to all licences previously purchased. Not cool, Devon Technologies. Not cool at all. There was a message that said, Upgraded or otherwise expired licences appear red and stroked out. But what if I have two Macs and one can't be upgraded to a version of macOS that allows me to use version 3? I'd expect to be able to use version 2, surely. No chance as your licence has automatically been nuked retrospectively. It's the retrospectively bit I find harsh. It's treating software licences like part-exchanged cars. In effect, you have to hand over your existing licences to get the upgrade discount to the new version. Now, I've always thought of an upgrade discount as a reward for upgrading, not an Arab bazaar bartering our way to an acceptable compromise in the pricing department. The system needed to make all this work would take some building, and an average app developer wouldn't be able to waste the time building something like this to ring-fence their licences. In the good old days, they spent their time building the apps, the ones that you loved to use and you paid for. A simple and more innocent time. What changed? Enter Paddle. They make their money from the developers similar to Apple's 30%. They provide the activation mechanism to make this unholy nightmare possible. Cheers for that. The developers use Paddle for payment processing and acquire the ability to deploy the Paddle-powered activation and software controlling system. Skynet. But I pressed on. The DevonThink system reported I had used two seats for DevonThink Pro 3. Devon Agent reported no licenses were in use at all. This needed more investigation. Understatement. I clicked on the DevonThink Pro 3 license to drill down for more information. Two active installs, it said. I can assure you, I have not. I have only installed it on one Mac. Furthermore, it told me I'd used both of these installs on the day that I was looking at the page. But I'd only used my iMac all day. It reported the second activation was on a device with nothing but hieroglyphics for a name and there was no username listed. Then I spotted the small print. No free seats available. Only devices registered at least five days ago can be removed. Hmm, so many questions. How do I deactivate something I didn't activate when I have no idea which device it's referring to? What to do if I install 
and then a Mac crashes and burns within five days of activating DevonThink. If you're going to get between me and my ability to use a piece of software I've purchased, you better not make any mistakes with your fancy 1984-esque system. I've only bought two products and the licensing page for each of them is incorrect. There's an extra activation of DevonThink on a device I don't recognise and it reports no activations at all for the second app, DevonAgent Pro, which I have installed and licensed. So work that one out. This one license per physical device is ludicrous. There is only one of me. I am the sole person using the software. I don't have to buy seven copies of a book to be able to read it in every room in my house. So why are you doing this? All this activation rubbish only hurts legitimate purchasers. It taints my view of your company and your software. And there's now so many variants of the purchasing subscription process, I completely despair. This from Devon Technologies is not right. The part exchange of a license is a bit mean, but there's errors in the system, 100% incorrect in my case, and there's no obvious way to fix it. I can't deactivate if I don't know where it's installed. There's no way to remotely manage activations, and there is a five-day limit between activations which precludes fast switching of devices. To be honest, there's not much right in what they've done since introducing version 3 back in spring 2019. Let's give a shout out to the companies and individual developers doing it right. When Microsoft are doing a better job than you are, it's time to reevaluate your system. When Adobe are doing a better job than you are, it's definitely time to reevaluate your system. Yes, Adobe are doing a better job, unless you want to keep your photos, of course. Well, there is that. But still, they're doing a better job in the licensing department. Anyway, let's get on to Bite Back. We heard from Jane. Jane has been diligently listening to multiple Mac Bytes episodes in a determined effort to catch up. And she says, relinquish her delinquent status. A couple of days later, she came back and said, I am officially now non-delinquent. Excellent, Jane. Excellent. She also said she loved the gaming review, the language of which was completely incomprehensible to her. <laughs> yeah, me as well. She does then go on to say, I have a very good memory in about the Fujitsu ScanSnap. She purchased it 10 years ago and it was an S1300. She paid £247 for it, but says it's been worth its weight in gold over the past decade doing sterling work. I do recall it well, Jane. I thought it was a really neat model by comparison to ours. I think it's the huge sheet feeder capacity thing and age that made ours less aesthetically pleasing. But great news that yours and now ours are still going strong after all these years, as they should be, Fujitsu. And it's fabulous to hear from you, Jane. And we heard from Storm Gorelli. Do you know, I do like that Twitter handle. Um, he said, well done for calling out Fujitsu's disgusting and cynical behaviour in deliberately removing software support for otherwise perfectly functional ScanSnap scanners. No matter what they've done since or what they may do in the future, their reputation is forever tarnished. Do you know, I completely agree about their reputation. I'll be taking a very serious look at their competition when it's next time for a new scanner. The thing is, they've kind of cornered the market, haven't they, with the integration with Mac apps. They really have. I, there are other scanners out there, but it's always, oh, and it has ScanSnap support. But given the situation with Devon Technologies licensing strategy, that might be even more important. 
going back to an old version of the driver is no longer going to be an option. So, yes, serious thinking, but Fujitsu not exactly covered themselves in glory. Anyway, great to hear from you. and glad that you enjoyed the Affinity Publisher newsletter session as well. And we're going live again on Friday night with another Mac Bites After Hours. It's the second of our Devon Think Build With Me sessions. This time we're building a GTD system. So it's going to include lots of techniques for generating 43 folders in the blink of an eye. Um, we'll be covering the para system, the coder system and creating an integrated journaling system. All in one Build With Me session. And I'll be covering automation in Outlook. And another week in lockdown is looming. You know what that means. We're going live every day during lockdown. Our five-part series, yeah, we're now in week 24 and over 160 shows in. It's an audio show on MapBytes FM every day at 7pm UK time. And don't we have fun, Mike? We do. <laughs> the conversations. We sit down and it's like, what should we talk about today? And it's a rare old chat with friends. So do join us for some daily laughs in the midst of these very strange times. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or you can use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Just go to macbytes.co.uk slash slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. Apparently I'm worth a fortune. You are? I am. Who told you that? I saw it on eBay iPhones are selling for thousands, and I have a plan. Oh dear, I can only imagine. Don't you want to know what it is? Is there any way of stopping you telling me, whether I want to know or not? No. Then go ahead. I'm planning on putting in for a transfer. I'm going to get myself a sugar daddy, who just wants me to play games all day. Are you insane? Not that I'm aware. Why do you ask? Because you are contemplating pimping yourself out to the highest bidder. I'm seeking to improve the terms of my employment. Do you have any idea how taxing it is playing games all day? There will be no lounging while Alexa peels you a grape you know. Anyway, I can assure you that you are not endowed with the right equipment to be that valuable. Don't get personal. There's nothing wrong with my equipment. Do you have Fortnite installed? Of course not. Can you remember the last time she installed a game? Don't be ridiculous woman. She was using a quill pen and parchment the last time that happened. I rest my case. Fair enough. I'll stay put here then. Alexa, peel me a grape.